Welcome to Landmark Worship Center's audio podcast. We hope that this message will inspire and encourage your life. So open your heart and mind and receive what God has for you today. Brother Ron's here, so he's going to have to keep me accountable. It's also good to have my friend Austin with me. Um, he should be driving home right now, but he instead he chose to stay here uh, and hear me teach. I'm sure I'll hear about it later. So, two Wednesdays ago, Sister Burke asked me to teach, which I had taught in August, so that's like, you know, five months early, so I didn't know if she had checked that, that she was that early. And when she first asked me, I just, like, I panicked right away. I knew, I knew Austin was going to be in town. Um, right away, I got real nervous, and I, I didn't say anything, and Sister Burke has that smile where she's waiting for you to respond, but your response is not really relevant to the situation. So usually I have, you know, a month or two, maybe, maybe three months ahead of time um, to pray, to prepare a lesson, to get ready for, um, you know, coming up here and doing this. And in this time, it was about half that time, right? It was about two weeks, which seems like a lot of time. Especially for someone like me, because I write my lessons like Saturday night. So still, the two weeks was really throwing me off. Um, But in spite of that, and I wanted to tell her no right away. um, Because that, you know, that two weeks, it was, I start getting fixated on time. and I start thinking about all the other stuff I got to do. Like, I got to go to bed the next couple weeks. Like, I got to brush my teeth. And so... I, got, I have kids. I can't do this. So immediately I began searching and thinking. Well, I told her yes, right? I, didn't, I left that part out, but I, obviously I told her yes. Um, there, that wasn't an option. So I immediately began thinking um, and searching for something meaningful to talk about. What is something profound that I know that I can say? Uh, what is something that I've been reading that I think, you know, that, I should, that people should hear? What do I know that Sister Burke was so wise to come and ask me about. But joking aside, we all know that it is not, and it's never really been about the teacher. You know, especially when we have pastors that, Pastor and Sister Burke who follow the Spirit, you know, who they don't ask, you know, they don't plan their services just haphazardly, that it's a very intentional. So two weeks ago, um, I believe it was two weeks ago on a Sunday, Pastor preached the rallying cry of an altar. In the message before that, Sister Burke taught, she taught her second, her second lesson in the series on the sensitivity of the senses. And that was the day that she covered the sense of smell. And if you have not heard that lesson, um, I implore you to go back and listen to it. And if you have heard that lesson, you need to go back and listen to it too. And in it, she talks about what it means to be a follower of Christ. She reads from Ephesians 5, verses 1 and 2. And she says, Be ye therefore followers of God, as dear children, and walk in love, as Christ also hath loved us, and hath given himself for an offering, and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. So her message, obviously, talking about the senses, she she honed in on the sweet-smelling savor. But she did note... 
So it says, be ye therefore followers of God. And she noted that the Greek word there for followers is mimetes, which means imitator. It's the only definition, I looked the word up, but it's the only definition given. So when it says, be ye followers of Christ, they understood it as imitate Christ. To follow God, to imitate him, is to walk in his love. It says, be ye therefore followers of God and walk in love as Christ also hath loved us. So she goes on to say this, and it's a lengthy quote, and I don't have her charm, so bear with me. I think we have a problem so many times with genuine love of God. Not love of man, not my interpretation of love, but the love of God who looks past what everybody looks like, who looks past the sin that they are in. He looks past the disappointment. He looks past the backsliding. He looks past not quite living up to par. And he looks past it all and loves. And we use the sense of our eyes to judge people, and it stops our love of God in the tracks. And I don't want it. I want love. I want to mimic the love of Christ. That kind of love only comes through forgiveness. When you and I can truly forgive others the way that God has forgiven us, then we will love the way that he loves us. And it will be a very sweet smell. Think about it for a minute. If there is someone that you are just not quite good with, something there in your relationship, I'm going to say probably 99% chance there is unforgiveness in your heart towards that person. It holds us back from loving people fully. And I mean the love of God that looks past what they're doing right now. When we forgive completely, we can love in a beautiful way. We can't hold a grudge and love the way he loves. It is impossible. We can't hoard bitterness in our spirit towards another human being and expect them to feel and others to see the love of God in us. Forgiveness is a very sweet smell to our God. And that's the end of that bit. So, the rest is all me. So this is when it gets rough, right? But I remember when I heard that part, it struck with me, and I had to go back and re-listen to it. And that's why I wrote it down directly, because it was just, it's just so, so beautiful. And that lesson was delivered to me at just the perfect time. Um, that Sunday, I was not doing very well. How many people ever show up on Sunday just not doing very well? Um, there is a host of reasons why it could be. And it was just one of those Sundays where you're thinking, like, why am I listening? Like, what, what am I? Like, I'm obviously not going to receive anything today just because of the way I'm in. And so it was just one of those Sundays, and I was just struggling and my heart was very, very heavy that day. And I was filled with this frustration. But after I heard the words that were above, I knew that that frustration was rooted in bitterness. It was just like, it was just like someone turned a light on. And so I thank God for a pastor's wife who is in tune with the Spirit. Sometimes we hear messages and we think like, that's for someone. <laughs> it's not for me, but it is for someone. And that was, that was a moment where I was like, that is for someone. And I knew that it was for me. Um, 
so she taught a beautiful lesson, and God knew where I was and what I needed. And then immediately following that, pastor preached the rallying cry of an altar. So again, I say, I thank God for a pastor and pastor's wife who are in tune with the Spirit. We are blessed to have them both. Um, and I only say that because they're not here, because I would hate to give someone a compliment if they could see me. <laughs> they're going to listen to this. But out of that service, both the lesson and the resulting altar call, this lesson was born. Immediately after the altar call, um, I have a little notebook, and I wrote these following words. And I felt them so strongly, um, just because the Lord started dealing with me immediately during the Sunday school message and throughout the rest of the service. It is compassion that stays the spirit of bitterness. Humility to consider ourselves the least of these. If Christ could forgive his killers in the act, saying they know not what they do, how much more can we forgive those in our lives? Compassion is the blood of unity, and love is the balm of bitterness. And so two weeks ago, when I was floundering to find something to teach on, um, I was flipping through the pages of my notebook, and I found those words, which... Um, funny enough, that was like 10 minutes after she asked me to teach. So I remember I said, yeah, I'll do it. And she's like, well, don't worry, like God will give you something. And I was like, well, probably not. And then I sat down and opened my notebook and there it was. Um, so what I talk about today, I feel, and I, and I haven't always felt this as directly, but I feel as if it was inspired directly by God to give. To give to our church for this moment. And I do not believe that the timing is on accident. This last week, as an organization, we prayed and we fasted against COVID. And I feel as though this is a crucial element of that. The Bible says that faith without works is dead, and we must embody Christ as he is calling us to do if we want to see the division in our world healed. And if this is for no one but myself, I am still thankful that he gave me these words. So for just a moment today, I want to talk to you about the blood of unity. For the past two years, or um, I would say maybe a little longer than two years, our nation has struggled greatly with division. I wanted to say the world, but I don't live in the world. I live here. I know what I've seen. I know the people I've encountered. Um, I know my relationships that have become strained with this. And for the last two years, I've seen um, our people as a country really, really struggle with division. Um, and it's not in the way that division is new, right? There's nothing new under the sun. It's always been around. But it really seems to me that it's been drawn to the forefront and magnified. There's an entire economy that is being built on propagating and instilling division in the people. And the industry of dividing people, pitting them against one one another, is vast, vast and overwhelming. You cannot hold any singular belief on any topic without being put into a camp where you are being told it is us versus them. And where Paul said that there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, our culture is telling us the exact opposite, that we must accept the limitations of singular identity and there is no option to reach across the aisle. And while I'm sure um, that there are bigger forces at work, like governments, political parties. There's always organizations. Uh, Someone 
an unnamed person once said, like, never what a good, um, what is it, never what a good disaster go to waste. Um, I'm sure these, there are all these big people, all these things that are so much higher than my understanding that are pulling the strings behind, um, you know, behind the curtain. I'm sure, obviously, we know, like, the enemy is a part of this, but there are all these things that are so much greater than what I know. But what I do know is that it always boils down to individual people. And when we look at the life of Christ, we don't see him fighting those people who are behind the curtain. We don't see him fighting those giant organizations. He doesn't take, you know, the Roman rule to task. But instead, he addressed the heart of every person that he encountered. So we too must not distract ourselves with trying to fight against the flesh and blood establishments. We must address the heart of the individual. And just as there is a blood of unity, surely there is also a blood of strife, a blood of division. And that is pride. Proverbs 13.10 says, Only by pride cometh contention, but with the well-advised is wisdom. Only by pride cometh contention. Pride is the primary in singular way, that all contention comes. And we could, uh, I should ask people to raise their hands and tell me some contention in their lives, right? Finish up the rest of my lesson. It is pride that fuels bitterness, and it is pride that fuels unforgiveness. It is pride that fuels competition, strife, all these things that we deal with. It is pride that says we deserve recognition or a higher station. Well, my lessons are good. I should be asked to teach more. I have a great voice. Why aren't, why, aren't, why aren't I leading? Pride is conveniently the very first emotion we feel when we are rebuked or corrected because we really know, you know, the other person just doesn't have the context. They don't have the understanding that we have. So they don't, they don't know when they correct me that I actually do know that. I've never told myself this, obviously. Pride is what is telling us that we deserve to feel hurt and that the other person needs to extend themselves to us. We have spoken about how faith is so important because it is the shield that covers ourselves and it extends to the brothers and sisters to our side. How one person's faith can bless more than just themselves. And in the same way that faith's importance is signified by its effect on others. Humility is the same for unity. You see, pride is the opposite of humility, and it is incredibly destructive within the kingdom of God. There's a reason why he says he resists the proud, because pride is the main agent of division within the body of Christ. Pride has a terrible way of completely isolating the individual And it creates a void where once there was a member. And now I'm talking about the body of Christ. So we're not talking about pulling that person out of the body. But we're talking about someone who is still within the body. And pride will create a void around that person. So if faith is a shield for the body of believers, pride is a chink in the armor. It's a vital point that is exposed. And it is the weakest link always. But I felt the words blood of unity very strongly. So when talking about this, I feel the opposite, pride. The word blood must be also equally important. So what does blood do? 
Why is it so important? And what does that expression mean? We use it a lot. This is the blood of that, right? We often say that blood is the life or um, life force of someone. And we're correct to do so. But the interesting thing about blood is that the blood itself is not what keeps us alive. But it's what blood carries. It is blood that carries oxygen from our lungs to our muscles. When we are sick, blood carries antibodies and white blood cells throughout our bodies. And when we are cut and wounded, it is blood that rushes to shore up the wound. It is blood that ferries life to the body and keeps it operating as intended. And just so, pride is not disunity, but it is the method by which all strife and disunity is sustained and given life. If blood ferries life to our mortal bodies, then pride will ferry life to the body of disunity and the body of strife. It will carry the antibodies, it will carry the minerals and the nutrients that strife needs to continue to live. And even though we are the church, we are not immune to the effects of pride and disunity. For better or for worse, each of us are in part shaped by the culture in which we live. And if we are not careful, we can allow the body of Christ, for which the design is unity in love, to be shaped by pride and destroyed from within. We talk about unity often, and I want to comment today um, that I don't feel like we're missing the mark. You know, we always, pastor says it, it's like every other service someone says, like, we have to have unity. I don't feel like we're missing the mark, and I don't feel like our church is disunified right now, or in a state of disunity. I'm not sure what I said was a word. Um, instead, we talk about it often. We're always mentioning it. We're always praying for it, because it's, um, it's a state of being, right? It's something you have to inhabit. It's a process, maybe is the best word to put it. Unity is a process. It's not something that once you achieve unity, you're like, well, I shook so-and-so's hand, and they wronged me a couple years ago, but I shook their hand, so we're good to go. Man's default state, how we are, and you said this, Raymond, during our connect group, and I've been thinking about it ever since. Like, we will always go fall back to being prideful, to, to not wanting um, to extend ourselves, to building up those walls. That is what we do as humans by default. So without intentionality, we will not live in unity. Unless we strive for it, continually we will not have unity. So when we hear about it over and over, it is not because we're failing, but because we have to keep it at the forefront of our minds. Because it really goes against our nature. So when we're hearing about it, just remember, like, I have to strive for it. It's a goal. Um, it's a race. Now that we've talked a little bit about what the opposite of unity is and what that means for something to be the blood, let's turn to the book of John. John 13, verses 34 and 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, and you also are to love one another. By all this, people will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. I bought a Matthew Henry 
single volume commentary, so I got to put it to use. So for the next couple years, you're only going to hear me reading out of Matthew Henry. He says this, we must have love, not only show love, but have it in the root and habit of love. We must have it when there is no present occasion to show it. Have it ready. Hereby it will appear that you are indeed my followers by following me in this. Note, brotherly love is the badge of Christ's disciples. By this he knows them. By this they may know themselves. And by this others may know them. This is the livery of his family the distinguishing character of the disciples. This he would have them noted for as that wherein they excelled all others. Where they excelled all others, they're loving one another. That was what their master was famous for. All that he ever heard of him, all, excuse me, all that ever heard of him, more affectionate. I switched my minds twice in a row, amazing. All that ever heard of him have heard of his love, his great love. And therefore, if you see any people more affectionate one to another than what is common, you should say, certainly these are followers of Christ. They have been with Jesus. Now by this it appears that the heart of Christ was very much upon it, that his disciples should love one another. In this they must be singular, whereas the way of the world is to be everyone for himself. They should be hearty for one another. He does not say, by this men shall know that you are my disciples if you work miracles. And we could do an aside here and list all the other great, great traits, great characteristics, great attributes of being a follower of Christ and what it means to be in the body. But for now, let's just say, if you work miracles. For a worker of miracles is but a cipher without charity. But if you love one another from a principle of self-denial and gratitude to Christ... This, Christ would have had be the proporium of his religion, the principal note of the true church. To the Bible scholars in the room, please correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe this instance in John is the only, it's the only time Christ issues a new commandment. And this point is often referred to as the new commandment, as he says in the verse. It is this singular trait that of love for one another that Christians should be known for above all else. It is this trait that binds us together under one mind and one accord. It is love that is the blood of unity. And from this love <clears throat> flows compassion, and from compassion flows humility, and it is with humility that we overcome pride. Colossians 3, verses 12 through 17, say this. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive and above all these, above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. 
And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, seeking psalms, singing, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, and forgiving our complaints as Christ forgave us. All of these things bound together in perfect harmony through love. And here again we see the pattern of the new commandment echoing, where Christ once said, put on love as I have loved you, Now we're seeing it again. Forgive one another as Christ has forgiven us. These traits, these divine attributes, are what flow in the body of Christ when there is unity. When there is a wound of pride in the body, humility and meekness will quench the bleeding. When the heart is suffering from bitterness, the blood will bring forth forgiveness to heal sickness. When members of the body are breaking from sorrow and grief and sin, It is compassionate hearts that will mend that brokenness. And that is the blood of unity. And above all these put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body. Unity, or harmony as it says, is not given merely because we are in agreement. It is not when the hurts and the pains between the members are alleviated. Harmony does not come when we all agree on every decision that pastor makes. And unity is not the absence of discordant tones, just as righteous is not the absence of falling. Unity comes when we esteem love and put love above all else. Proverbs 24, 16 For the righteous falls seven times and rises again. So here we are given this pattern of righteousness where it is defined by continuing to rise, continuing to choose to run the race and not throw in the towel. Every time we sin, our options are to remain or to rise and once more continue towards Christ. And as an aside, for those who may struggle with this, Definitely myself. This pace will look different for every single person. And every, every one of us may not be heading in the same angle. We may be a little bit off sometimes. But the pace in the direction of others is not for us to decide. Rather, it is for us to pick ourselves up and offer a hand to our brothers and sisters who may stumble and to look towards Christ who is the finisher of our faith. So if this is how we define righteousness, then we may also define unity as the choice to persist in the face of disagreement. Unity is the choice to to persist in the face of struggle. And this love that binds us and draws all these traits together, humility, meekness, compassion, that Henry said was the livery of Christ. It's, it's the insignia sewed onto your clothes that we will be known for. 
that a royal family would be known for. Philippians 2, 1 through 3. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility. In humility, count others more significant than yourself. I want to get to that, but we always say help us to be in one mind and one accord. And we should maybe start tagging on one love, um, but there's some connotations there. Help us to be in one mind and one accord, and it is love that binds these things together. It is love that seals unity, and it is love that calls us to humility. Count others more significant than yourselves. Ooh. Don't like that. Count others more significant than yourselves. That's hard. But that is the cornerstone of unity. For us to stop seeing others as those to be looked down on, to be weighed according to our own beliefs and thoughts. Even when we are wronged or we are hurt, and we think we are justified in our frustrations and anger towards others. You see, justification in our offense is the first seed of bitterness. Once we feel like the other person was wrong because they sinned, once we, once we have that justification where you know they're wrong and I'm right, I did nothing, that is the very, 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 very first seed of bitterness. And once we allow ourselves to feel justified that someone has sinned and missed the mark and wronged us, of all people, then we can begin to excuse our own behavior. We say, well, so-and-so did this to me and hurt me. Or they've sinned and I'm in the right. And so on and so on. And we've all experienced this. Even times when the others truly have sinned. And that's not really what it's about, right? The fact that it doesn't matter whether or not they're really right or wrong should be an indication. So whether or not that person has sinned against us is irrelevant because the seeds will grow in our life. Um, there's, a, uh, there's a quote I wish I'd written down. It's that um, bitterness is a poison that hurts the vessel in which it is stored more than it hurts that on which it is poured. So this offense turns to judgment, and judgment turns to justification for us shirking our own duties. And that justification will turn to unforgiveness if we allow it. And finally, it will bear the most bitter fruit of all, and that is a fruit that will keep us out of heaven if we partake of it. And of all those fields that are tended within our hearts, They are tended with pride. But instead, if we return good for evil, if we have any comfort, if we have any comfort and participation in the Spirit, we will exercise humility through love and count others more significant than ourselves. 
I know I read ESV, but there are no qualifiers in that scripture still. There's no asterisks. There's no footnotes on who we should count more significant than ourselves. There's nothing to signify when we may, that we may cease if someone sins, whether in truth or our own perception of sin. It is not our place to measure the saints and the people of the world against each other. Christ said the winnowing fan is in his hand alone. And the problem is that pride comes naturally. Judgment comes naturally. And that is why we must be so wary of it. There is nothing easier than to live in a state of pride. Nothing is easier than to count ourselves more significant than others. And that is why it must be rejected so fully and so strongly. Because it is so easy. I can tell you it's easy. You know it's easy. It is so easy to live in a state of pride. But to fight for unity is to reject pride and to take on compassion. It is to trade pride for humility. To turn the other cheek. Which I always love when people use that expression, turn the other cheek. Turn the other cheek has an implication that so-and-so wronged me, so... Um, I will turn the other cheek and move away from that, right? Like, I will allow this. I will not retaliate. But turn the other cheek has really nothing to do with retaliation. Um, If someone strikes you on one side, to turn the other cheek is to once again make yourselves vulnerable and to offer the other side for offense. If so-and-so lies to you, do you shore up the walls in that relationship? Do you stop talking to that person if... You know, they don't invite you out one time. Do you stop texting them? Um, You know, if someone does something wrong to you, uh, if they yell at you, if they scream in your face, do you cut that relationship off? Do you say, like, well, I don't have room for this toxicity or I can't handle this in my life? Or do we turn the other cheek and do we open ourselves up once again to be offended? Because the state of being in Christ is the state of being most vulnerable to all men. It is a state of exposing ourselves for all manner of disrespect still. It is to hang in the midst of your accusers and to look at your fellow man and be so moved by compassion and love for them that you defer to them even in your final moments. That you would plead for forgiveness on the behalf of those who would nail you to a cross. It is to live a life so wholly devoted to humility and deference that we see both those who are part of the body and those who are not, only through the lens of compassion. To know them as souls who are in need only. It is to choose to be defined first and foremost by the love of Christ. Ephesians 4, 11 through 16 says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure and the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, that we are no longer this is me, children tossed by the waves of pride, 
the waves of bitterness, the waves of unforgiveness and disunity. By human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And he starts this passage by saying the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the teachers, the praise singers, the Sunday schoolers, the janitors. From who the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And it is love that ties us into that fold. So again, I want to read what I wrote two or three weeks ago. It is compassion that stays the, bit, the spirit of bitterness. Humility to consider ourselves the least of these. If Christ could forgive his killers in the act, saying they know not what they do, how much more can we forgive those in our lives? Compassion is the blood of unity, and love is the balm of bitterness. So, if we will close in prayer, and if we would just think in our own lives, like, like Sister Burke said, think about it for a minute. If there is someone that you are not just quite good with, something there in your relationship, I'm going to say probably 99% chance there is unforgiveness in your heart towards that person, which holds us back from loving fully. Because when I heard that, I thought instantly of the people in my lives who had wronged me, whether in truth or, or perception, that I cut those ties with, that I built those walls up with. And it's so easy and it's so natural. But we are to love those people. And sometimes they're our family. Sometimes they're our closest friends, our spouses, our children, our parents our coworkers, our boss who doesn't have the Holy Ghost who yelled at you, whatever. But just to think about them and think about Christ um, as he faced his killers and said, forgive them for they know not what they do. So let's pray today in closing that God would speak to our hearts and open up our hearts and speak to our minds 